This sermon was delivered at Grand Avenue Baptist Church, a gospel-centered church in Ames, Iowa. Hear more sermons and learn more about Grand Avenue at gabcames.org. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. Thank you, Beth. Well, we are moving toward Easter. And you'll notice some songs that uh, hymns get put in there, like Go Dark to Gethsemane this morning. Just prepare us for that time, right? Think about Christ's resurrection, uh, celebrating that at Easter. I have one announcement before we get started this morning. I meant to announce this back in January and completely forgot. Well... Yeah, no. I had a post-it note, and I stuck it somewhere where I couldn't see it, you know. You ever, I don't know if you ever do that. But that's really what my memory is, that and along with all the notifications in my calendar uh, on my phone. So uh, we did a Lottie Moon International Christmas offering this past year. It runs through December and uh, all the way through the end of, of January, but usually December is the big month where people give. And so we didn't necessarily, we didn't set like a goal per se. Um, I think we, we did set, set one, but we, we far exceeded that. So I think it, can't remember what it was. Dixie was here. She could remind me. I forgot, right? Uh, it, well, <laughs> it probably was, Luke, thanks. Uh, but you, the church gave $11,800.12. Uh, to international missions. That's, I've been here be 15 years in May. We've never given that much. So praise God for that. 
thank you so much. Um, and I know um, people like Seavers, you know, benefit from that gift. So, uh, you know, when you give to our budget, just regular budget giving, a, a portion of that goes toward uh, international missions. So that's that's the way we try to, uh, one of the ways we fund our missions. We, we just don't always just take a special offering all the time. Just your regular giving goes toward that. Now, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask this morning that the unfolding of your word would give light to a passage that can be complicated, can be hard, can be challenging, can be difficult. And so, Lord, help us understand what our Savior is saying. Help us to apply it to our hearts so that we can draw closer to him and see this great salvation that he has given us as life, death, and resurrection from the dead. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this past Friday, February 16th, one of my favorite sports got back underway again in Jordan uh, Prescott's as well. It's college baseball. College baseball. Yeah, there he goes. He's giving his thumbs up. So college baseball. I know I like women's fast-pitch softball, too. And since Iowa State doesn't have a baseball team, I, I like to go watch the ladies play uh, fast-pitch softball. In a month or so, a little over a month, Major League Baseball will get started back up. And I'm hoping that the Texas Rangers repeat their World Series win. And so we were in the cellar for years, you know, and then finally won one. And so now we hope, I hope that they repeat. So anyway, I don't know if you know much about baseball and fast pitch softball. But if you watch closely, the coaches are always giving signs to the players. Luke, you coach baseball. You're giving those players signs when they get out there. So the coaches are telling the pitchers what to pitch. He's like, yeah, yeah, no, I don't really do that. <laughs> but uh, the coaches tell the pitchers what to pitch. The, the catcher will be back there, and he's got certain signs, and he's telling that pitcher whether to throw a curveball or a fastball or a slider or whatever he throws. Um, and then when the, when the base runners get on base, you know, the, the, the base coaches are out there telling them when to steal, when to run, whether to keep on going. You'll see that guy over there like that, you know. And so he's waving him home, you know. And so if players ignore those signs, um, that usually will end in that player getting out because he wasn't paying attention to the coach and it will cost the team a game. So one time when I was playing high school baseball, I had made it all the way around to third base. I'm standing there and the coach held me up. And uh, he told me, he said, now on the next pitch, I want you to steal home. And I'm like, yeah, exactly, David. I, I'm not the fastest guy on the team. I I don't know that I'd ever stolen the base at all. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I'm like, this is a squeeze play, you know, stealing home. That That's hard to do. He said, so when he starts to pitch, he said, man, you take off. Well, he did. He wound up and got ready to pitch, and I hesitated. I didn't go. I know, and it was a pass ball. I could have scored easily. It was one for the, you know. But I didn't, and then the next time he threw another pitch and the guy got out, and we lost the game. <laughs> Costly mistake, right? Not, not paying attention to the signs, you know, not listening to the coach. Now this morning we're going to conclude Matthew 12, which is part of a bigger block of text of Matthew 11 and 12. And these two chapters are pressing home the point of not missing the signs that Jesus is giving. 
doesn't want us to miss the signs. But the question is, I mean, because what he's doing with these signs, he's telling us who he is and how we can make it to our eternal home. And the question is, are you paying attention to him? You know, will you listen to him? And when you obey the signs that he has given you, will, will you do what he is calling you to do as he calls you to do that? So, uh, listen, missing the signs that Jesus gives has eternal consequences. They are far more important and impactful than missing some baseball sign of not taking a base or, or something like that as I did in high school. Let's do a little recap before we jump into uh, the, in, the last part of Matthew 12. And so at this point in our narrative, in the story, Jesus has been on the move as he taught. And he had commissioned the disciples and he had sent them out, if you remember, back in Matthew uh, 10 and 11. And then he helped John the Baptist and his disciples recognize the signs so they would understand who he was. And after that, he confronted the unrepentant cities of the Decapolis for not recognizing the signs, right? The woes to those cities, remember that? And then in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, we have that very familiar and famous passage where Jesus calls everybody to come to him and find rest in him. And then Matthew 12 begins, and Jesus is traveling through a wheat field with his disciples. They pick some heads of grain, and they rub them in their hands and eat those. And the Pharisees are apparently following close behind, and they saw that, and uh, they uh, made them angry. And so the Pharisee, Jesus had to give the Pharisees a lesson on mercy from the Old Testament, and he concluded that lesson by declaring that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. And then to prove that he was the Lord of the Sabbath... He healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. And so this was the breaking point for the Pharisees. They had had enough, and after that they began to actively plot how they may kill Jesus. And uh, aware of this, Jesus withdrew from there and made his way to a friend's house. And when he got there, a demon-possessed man who was also mute and blind was brought to him, and he healed him. And the Pharisees... Man, these guys are just tagging along, right? They witnessed that. Uh, but instead of believing the sign, they doubled down on wanting to kill Jesus. And so while he was in the house, they accused him of being in league with the devil. Oof. And they said the, his power to do miracles came from Satan. And Jesus corrected them and told them that they had committed blasphemy against the Spirit of God because they had given credit for the miracles that he had done to the devil. And then he called them a brood of vipers and a bad tree with rotten fruit and concluded in verse 37 by saying for your words uh, for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned and their words did condemn them. So I have two points this morning as we work through the end of Matthew 12. And here they are. And they're pretty short. And I'll unpack them more as we move through the passage. Two points. The warnings and the reward, the warnings and the reward. Now, when we come to the warnings, we've got three warnings to, to cover, okay? But here's the main point of the warnings, okay? The warnings, point number one, demanding a sign is a sign of unbelief. Demanding a sign is a sign of unbelief. That was true for the Pharisees, it's true for us. All right. So as Jesus was teaching at this friend's house, Pharisees demanded that Jesus give him a sign. 
that would convince them, seemingly convince them, that he was the Son of God. Now listen again to what they said, verse 38. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. This request sounds harmless, but in reality it's not. The religious leaders, they they had seen plenty of signs. But they didn't believe in Jesus. You know, Jesus was not going to play their little game and perform a miracle on demand like he's some kind of conjurer or magician to be manipulated. So look at Jesus' reply in verse 39, the first part of verse 39, right? 39a. And he wasted no time in calling out their failure to believe. An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign for a sign. And so he demanded, I mean, he identified that those who demanded a sign are an evil and adulterous generation. So Jesus called them this three times in these verses, in verses 38 through 42. And then he did it again in verse 45. But if you remember, if you've been with us, and if you haven't, I'm going to remind you, right? If you've been with us back in Matthew 11, verse 16, he he began to talk about this generation. You remember that? And so he said, but to what shall I compare this generation? So there's a context here. This is all flowing together. Okay, well, now we've had to break it up into sermons because we can't say everything in one sermon, right? Sometimes we try. Shoemaker always tried, right? That's the reason we'd be here 45, 50 minutes. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Jenny, don't tell him I said that. He's out preaching at some church this morning, so... And he's got to preach two sermons there that day. And so we were laughing about it this weekend. And so anyway, you can be in prayer for him. But anyway, this is, this is a long argument. And he's been, he's been moving right along. And so it, this is kind of one unit, these two chapters. And so here's the deal. This, this request that they had seems to imply that if Jesus did this sign... They would believe. If you just do this sign, convince us that you are the Messiah. And so listen, it's, this is, here's what we need to know. This is the same, same kind of, similar kind of issue that John the Baptist and his disciples had back earlier. Right? They, they came to Jesus and they said, John wants to know, are you the one? And Jesus didn't go, yes, I'm him. He, 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 what he did, this is important, What he did was point them back to God's word. He said, yes, this way. All right. Scripture, I'm doing these things. The the blind, their eyes are open. The lame can walk. The deaf can hear. The mute can speak. Demons are being cast out. The captives are being set free. This is what's going on. Why? He's pointing them back to Scripture to show that I am the Messiah who fulfills those things. And so without just saying yes, he, the proof is in the signs of Scripture being fulfilled. That's their proof. Go read the Word. Read it. Know it. And understand. I am the Messiah. And so the religious leaders, on the other hand, they demanded a sign after they had witnessed all the signs. And here's the deal. These guys know the Bible. They know the Bible. They know the Bible probably better than we will ever know Scripture. They've been memorizing it since they were knee-high to a grasshopper, right? And so they just they knew Scripture. But they didn't believe it. You see, John the Baptist didn't see Jesus do all those things. He simply... Uh, and so what happens, Jesus pointed him back to God's Word. This is what God's Word said the Messiah would do. I'm doing those things. Ergo, I am He. 
I'm the Messiah. The religious leaders failed to believe on two levels. They failed to believe God's word and they failed to believe the signs. Two things. They didn't believe God's word, didn't believe the signs. So instead of carefully studying God's word to see if Jesus was fulfilling the, uh, the, the prophecy about him, they just wrote that off, didn't believe it, didn't believe the sign, didn't believe God's word, and so they were missing Jesus. But they acted as if, when they asked the question, that if he would just give them a sign, they would believe. That was the implication of what they said. But their demand wasn't sincere. It was, it was disguised as a satanic temptation. So here's what we need to remember now, okay? Let's keep things in context. Remember what Satan said to Jesus when he was in the wilderness. If you are the Son of God. Remember that back in chapter 4? That's basically what they're saying. If you are the Son of God, do this. That's what the devil said. He recognized that. So you can hear the devil's words echoed in the Pharisees' request. And they had no intention of believing in Jesus. They wanted proof to condemn him. That's what they wanted. And in verses 39b through 45, Jesus gave three warnings to wake up anyone who was floundering and unbelief. So this, to confront them, but for us, we need to read this and go, he's speaking to me too. I can be there. Perhaps you've been there. Perhaps you're there now. Because what's going on here? So listen, so if you're not a Christian, you need to know that believing the signs that, I mean, if you're not, a, not believing the signs that God has given in his word about Jesus, these warnings caution you they caution you to uh, not to remain in your unbelief. You tracking with me? If you're not a Christian, they caution you and they warn you, don't remain in unbelief. You must believe. You must, you must believe. You, you don't make a deal with God and say, if God, you will just do this in my life, then I will believe. That's what the Pharisees were doing. And neither do you wait when you're confronted with the truth. God is giving you the sign in Jesus. It's in his word. We see it, and now we are called to believe it. Second, if you are a Christian, these warnings caution us not to drift into a state of unbelief. Not to drift into a state of unbelief. They warn us about unbelief. And so remember, listen, the overall warning here is this. Demanding a sign is a sign of unbelief. Because listen, Christians can do that too. Lord, just give me a sign. Let me know. Read the word. Obey what he's telling you to do. Now let's look at these three warnings, all right? Warning number one. Don't miss this great salvation in Jesus. Basically the message of the book of Hebrews. Don't miss this great salvation in Jesus, verses 39 through 40. So the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate sign. We can look back and see that now. Jesus is going to point toward that. We look back and see it. And so the first warning goes straight to the heart of Jesus' mission on earth, which was to come and die on the cross and pay for the sin of his people and then rise from the dead on the third day, victorious over death. And so Jesus came to blaze a trail back to God so that people can be reconciled to him. 
That's what he came to do. And so that we can spend eternity with him and the new heavens and the new earth and that he's prepared for us. And so, you know, these guys, the Pharisees, they're going to miss it. They didn't believe in Jesus' message. You and I will miss it. You will miss it if you don't believe in Jesus' message. Look at his warning in the last part of verse 39 and verse 40. And he compared his life and mission to the Old Testament prophet Jonah. He compared it to Jonah's life and mission. Look at what he said. But no sign will be given to uh, will be given to accept the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in uh, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so most people are familiar with Jonah's story. You familiar with Jonah's story? God came, commanded Jonah to preach the message of repentance to the people in Nineveh, a very wicked city back in the Old Testament. But Jonah refused to obey God. He hopped on a boat and tried to run away from God. And, and it was discovered uh, when this boat got out to sea. It was a great storm. They were about to sink. And the sailors discovered that Jonah was the one running from God. This is why this storm came upon them. And so Jonah said, if you'll throw me overboard, the storm will quiet. And so that's what happened. They threw him overboard. The storm, storm quietened down. A great fish swallowed Jonah. It's a really amazing story, right? He's in the belly of that fish three days and three nights. The fish vomits him up on the shore uh, over in Israel. He, and he probably looked like he had been in a fish for three days and three nights. Got up and he goes back to do, he goes to do what God called him to do. And so he goes to Nineveh and he preaches repentance and the people, lo and behold, turn from their sins and turn to God. Jonah himself is the sign. His message is the sign. And he had been in the belly of that fish three days and three nights. He was as good as dead. And he emerged preaching God's message to those wicked people. And they believed. They believed the message. And so by his life and his message, he proved that he was God's messenger. And they were saved. Why? They turned from their sin. And so listen, Jesus is the true and greater Jonah. That's what he's saying here. So instead of running from God's calling, that's Jonah's sin. It wasn't Jesus. Jesus didn't do that. What did Jesus do? He leaves heaven. He comes to earth. He embraces what he's called to do, to go and preach to the sinners on this planet. And he left heaven, came to earth, preached repentance. He called sinners to trust in him as their only hope for salvation. And then he proved who he said he was by being crucified on a cross in our place and for our sins, was buried in a borrowed tomb and then rose from the dead on the third day, victorious over death and hell. And he fully and finally verified and showed that he is God's messenger and that God's message was true. And anyone who turned from their sins because of what he preached and believed in him would be saved. Here's the deal. We struggle with the same problem that the religious leaders did in that day. They refused to believe the sign that fulfilled God's word. There are people today that refuse to believe. They reject the testimony of Jesus and they reject the work of the Spirit of God in their life. So here's the bottom line. The Pharisees trusted in themselves. 
If you know anything about them, that's what you know. They trusted in themselves. So instead of humbling themselves and admitting they were sinners, they trusted in their good works. That's what they did. They were self-righteous. And thus they were spiritually blind, mute, and deaf to Jesus' message. They, they missed the signs because of their unbelief. So friends, to deny God's message about Jesus from the Bible is the same sin as the Pharisees. That's what it is. If you will not trust in Jesus, then you will trust in your own wisdom, your own wealth, your education, your physical abilities, accomplishments, power, position in life. You fill in the blank. In essence, you attempt to become your own savior and do whatever you want to do. And, and, and you try to produce something in your life that gives you comfort and satisfaction and security. And the problem is it never does. Never results in that. So listen here, friends, if you've never trusted in Christ, do not wait until your heart is so hardened by unbelief that you can't hear the good news of the gospel. You need to heed Jesus' warning here. And what is it? Don't miss this great salvation that is in Christ. Jesus has provided it through his life, death, and resurrection from the dead. Come to Jesus while there's time. That's a real complicated message, right? Come to Jesus. While there's time. That's warning number one. Don't miss this great salvation. Warning number two. It gets scarier. You will be condemned for your unbelief. In verses 41 through 42. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation. There it is again, right? This generation and condemn it. For they, remember, what, the, what did the Pharisees want to do? They wanted to condemn Jesus, but Jesus turns it around on them. And he says, they will rise up at the judgment, this generation will, and condemn it. Basically condemn you, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something is great, greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something is greater, something greater than Solomon is here. And so Jesus draws on the truth of Jonah's life and ministry, and by reminded, by remind, and he reminds the religious leaders that these Gentiles in Nineveh, that's what they were. They were Gentiles. They knew enough to believe God's message and repent. They recognized Jonah's life somehow through God's Spirit, and they turned from their sins and trusted Christ, I mean, trusted God in the message. That's what they did. So think about it. The people of Nineveh, they had not been taught God's Word. They didn't know the covenants that God had made with His people. They didn't have the law. All they had was the preaching of Jonah, and yet, hey, look, 40 days, and this place is going to be destroyed unless you repent. And they did. But the Pharisees and scribes, these religious leaders, they had heard Jesus teach. They had heard the Son of God teach. They had seen his miracles and how these miracles, these, these signs confirmed who he was from the Old Testament, yet they rejected the message. They didn't repent because what did they do? They're trusting in themselves. They're jealous. We don't want him. This is interrupting my life. And so at the final judgment, these Gentiles, the men of Nineveh, will rise up and they will condemn these religious leaders for their failure to believe in the true and greater Jonah. 
And likewise, the queen of the south, and you know who she is? She, just in case you don't know, this is the queen of Sheba that came to Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had given Solomon. And so most likely, scholars believe that she was from Ethiopia. And so, listen, she had to travel for months to get to Jerusalem, to hear God's wisdom through King Solomon. She went to a lot of trouble. Why? Because she wanted to know the man who had God's wisdom, and she, she understood that. And so like the men of Nineveh, the queen of Sheba, she, she was a Gentile, yet she recognized the wisdom of God in Solomon, and she believed it and wanted to hear it more than anything, so she sought it with great effort. And yet God's people, these Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had all the advantages of Scripture and the covenants and the law, they rejected Jesus. They rejected his word. They rejected his message. They rejected his wisdom. God, who had come in the flesh, they rejected him. They didn't believe that the greater Solomon, the greater Jonah had come. And so because they refused to believe, they would be judged. And not only judged by God, but judged by these Gentile believers. They would condemn them because they missed the truth and beauty of God in Christ. That's the second warning. You'll be judged. Third and final warning, here it is. You cannot be neutral toward Jesus. You cannot be neutral towards you. There is no, it's not, I do use some double negatives here. There's not any neutrality. There's no, uh, well, I'm just, I'm not an unbeliever and I'm not a believer. You know, I'm, I'm in the middle. I'm in this neutral ground. There is no neutral ground. I hate to break that to you. Jesus illustrated this warning with a discussion on demonic possession. Now, this last warning, now you got to stay with me on this, okay? I want to help you see it. This last warning may feel a bit out of place. It's kind of hard to get our minds around because he is shifted from talking about he shifted from talking about Jonah and the queen of the south to talking about, and you've been talking about the evil generation, right? To talking about demons. But here's a remember, you got to remember the context. Here's the thing. Remember the context. What had just happened back in verse 22? He had cast the demon out, right? Remember I told you this is a unit. So he cast the demon out. He performed an exorcism. And, and to give a warning to the Pharisees, what he did was he, he drew on what he had just done. He drew on their sin of blasphemy against the Spirit. Remember, what they had done is get the devil credit for the work of God. And listen to what he says in verses 43 through 45. When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, now he's probably looking at this guy in the room that he had just cast a demon out of. He said it passes through the waterless places and seeking, seeking rest, but finds none. And then it says, I'll return to my house which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this, with this evil generation. So think about these verses this way. Imagine a person's life is like a house that's been put in order. That's, this is kind of like the illustration he's given, given us here. And this person had had an evil spirit in him. And by self-effort, he cleaned up his life for the moment. For the moment, that person's life is empty. 
It's not filled with anything. So the question is, Jesus proposes and implies that what's going to happen with this person who is starting to be moral, starting to be self-righteous, reformed himself, doing a lot better. What's going to happen? Well, that evil spirit is left. He's like, I got to go somewhere. That's what happens. He said, I'm going to go back. And when he goes back, he takes seven demons with him. And the condition of that guy is worse than the first. And so here's what this means. Seven evil spirits possessing a person like that, that's, that's the perfection of evil in that person. That's the perfection of evil. And so that's what Jesus is saying. If this person will not be filled with faith in him, then he will be filled with the perfection of evil because he has rejected the ultimate message, the ultimate messenger, the gospel, the best news in the world. This person is going to be the perfection of evil and his state is going to be worse. Because listen, what's, what's going on here? He's self-righteous. He's cleaned his life up, right? His heart is hard. So here's the deal. Bottom line, you cannot be mute, uh, neutral toward Jesus. You cannot reform yourself and think, well, I'm not sure about Jesus. I'm going to clean up my life first, and I'm going to live a good life. I'm going to be moral, and I'm not going to think about, a, about following Christ. So, friends, there's nothing, nothing worse than a person who is outwardly reformed, but inwardly self-righteous. That's a hard heart. This person is ultimately wicked to the core because he, he can't repent. Can't repent and believe in Jesus. They are the embodiment of this evil generation that we find in verse 45. Listen, there's no neutral ground with Jesus. Jesus told us in verse 30, didn't he? Remember our context. Whoever is uh, not with me is, you fill it in, is what? Against me. There's no neutrality here. No neutral ground. Not to decide about Jesus is to reject Jesus. Not to decide is to decide. So to put off trusting Jesus is to reject the neutrality toward Jesus is unbelief. And it puts you in the category of this evil generation. You don't want to be there. While there's time, you must turn. And so friends, if you're not a Christian, then do not wait. Stop putting it off. Stop rejecting Christ. Jesus pulls no punches with these warnings. And those who miss these signs are doomed. It's that critical. It's that important. You must listen to the good news and be saved. And so here's what happens. When you turn to Christ, and you're, what happens is you're brought into the family of God. This is the reward. So you got the warning. What you want is the reward. Look in verses 46 through 50, or our last point here. The reward, repentance and faith in Jesus equals or results in the family of God. It results in adoption, being brought into the family. He says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brother stood outside asking to speak with him, to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And I want to stop right there. So listen, Jesus was still in the house speaking. When his mother and brother showed up and they wanted to talk to him, now we don't know why they wanted to talk to him. Here's what the other Gospels tell us. The other Gospels indicate that early on his brothers didn't believe he was the Messiah. His mother knew, but perhaps she, 
she uh, wanted to protect him from the Pharisees, right? Because she knew. She probably knew they wanted to kill him. And her goal was to protect her son. And perhaps her brothers, that maybe that's what they wanted as well. We just don't know what their motive was for showing up. It's not really that important. But they showed up and, and tried to get him to stop. But Jesus was taking even this opportunity to teach. Look at what he said in verses 49 through 50. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so look at what he did. He looked around the house and he saw his disciples. Now listen, these guys weren't perfect. They didn't really understand everything yet. But he loved them and knew they wanted to follow him. He knew they believed in him. And he said to the room, here are my brother and mothers, or my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. And so he wasn't denying that he had a biological mother and brothers and sisters. He wasn't denying that. He was speaking of discipleship. He was speaking to those who loved him and saw him as the Messiah. Jesus loved his mother. He loved his brothers and his sisters, but he didn't, here's, listen, he didn't allow them to sidetrack him from his mission, did he? He continued to teach. Jesus practiced what he preached. Do you remember what he said back in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39? Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's what he told us. And listen, his family, for whatever, let's just say their motives are honorable Protection, you know, don't get in trouble here, Jesus. He's like, you know what? I'm called to preach repentance. I'm not going to stop that. Love you, but I got to do what God wants me to do here. That's what he called us to do, right? He called us to follow him like that. He's doing exactly, he, he, he's not calling us to do something he didn't do. He said in verse 38, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So brothers and sisters, look around the room. Look around the room. For those who are believing in Jesus, they turn from the sin and turn to Christ. This is your mother and brothers, sisters in the faith. The church is a family of God. Now, Let's be the family of God that is taking up our crosses and following Him. And follow Him together as a family. It's, it's funny when you grow up in church. I don't know if you grew up in church, but I grew up in a church. And we tend to sing the same songs over and over. We, we do that here too. I like singing familiar songs, right? I, I can sing louder when I know what's coming next. <laughs> Some of you are saying, oh, I wish you didn't. <laughs> But the church is a family of God. And so, uh, and some of these songs, when you sing them a lot, they, they teach, right? They're, they're like liturgy and they stick in your mind. And I remember very little of what my pastors taught me, but I remember the songs we sang. I remember them. And I'm getting this message ready and there's a song sticking in my head. There's an old hymn. It's called The Family of God. And listen to the words of this hymn. I knew Andrea was, she's shaking her head. I knew she was going to remember this song. It goes like this. He said, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by the, his blood. 
joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this side, for I am part of the family, the family of God. I haven't sang that song in forever, but I've remembered almost every word. It goes on, it says, you will notice we say brother and sister around here. It's because we're a family and these are so near. Which one has a heartache? We all share the tears and rejoice in each victory in this family so dear. From the door of an orphanage to the house of the king, no longer an outcast, a new song I sing. From rags to riches, from the weak to the strong, I'm not worthy to be here, but praise God, I belong. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this side, for I am part of the family, the family of God. Do you realize that the gathering of the church every Sunday is a sign? Did you know that? It's a witness, right? It's a witness to an unbelieving world that Jesus is alive. It is telling the world that Jesus is who he says he is. And so when we gather, it's not the ultimate sign, right? It's not the ultimate, but it is a sign. It is a witness. So as we gather to worship the Trinitarian God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we are assigned to an unbelieving world. When we exalt the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who is God incarnate, who came from heaven to die on the cross as our substitute, who was killed for our sins and buried in a borrowed tomb and rose from the dead on the third day, we are assigned to an unbelieving world that Jesus, the Son of God, is alive and he is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God right now, interceding for us even as we worship. So, friend, if you're here this morning and you've let yet to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, here's your sign. Here's your sign. When you read the New Testament, you will learn that we need three homes in life. We need a house to live in, a place where we get off work or whatever we're doing, and we can go home and close the door and shut the world out, right? We need an eternal home in heaven, one that's been built by the Lord Jesus Christ and prepared for us. And until we reach that eternal home, we need this third home. We need a church home. A place where we can travel together until we make it home. We need a church family. We can gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ and practice what this hymn says. When one has a heartache, we all share the tears and rejoice in each victory in this family so dear. So if you have a question this morning about what it means to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd love to talk with you. If you have a question about what it means to become a member of Grand Avenue, I'd like to talk with you about that too. You can see me after the service. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.